join with me as we read Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall come over me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were, that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious are your thoughts, O oh God, of me. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And I do not loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there would be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the very word of God. Where does life begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Descriptions of God's creating work abound in the word. His formation of man manifests his intricate glory in the people he makes in his image, what we know as the imago dei, an image unique to humans, not shared by any other creature. While the composite material making the body was earthly, dust, 
the source of life was divine. It is the breath of God that institutes life when he says, let there be life. Any system of thought, government, religion, or worldview that denies this falls short of the glory of God. This imago dei carries tremendous consequences regarding the protection of human life, born and unborn, and regarding abortion, the care of embryos and babies, and the ethical practice of medicine, including fertilization and stem cell research. God grants dignity to every person made in his image, regardless of stage, age, gender, ethnicity, ability, viability, size, or dependency. And every life is worthy. Psalm 8 tells us that he grants glory and honor to people and regards them but little lower than the heavenly beings. This is reason for high honor and also for sober humility. The same psalm also confirms what God declared in his covenant with Noah, that humans have dominion over animals, but they are not allowed to take another human life. For every human life is sacred, a sanctity announced in Genesis 4, and that was before the giving of the law in Exodus. The sanctity is dependent on God's moral character. From the moment of fertilization, every life is worthy of living, and the right to life is an absolute right. Such a sanctity has been recognized throughout history, but abortion is an old sin. The problem of disregard for human life in general, and of newborn life in particular, is not a new phenomenon. From of old, God warned his people not to act like the nations around them who sacrificed their children and practiced infanticide. Unfortunately, we see the practice eventually happened to and in Israel. In 1 Kings 11, Solomon turns away from the Lord and builds an altar to Molech, whose worship included child sacrifice. The practice later spreads to Moab in 2 Kings 3, then to Judah when the evil king Ahaz burnt his own son as an offering. Then to Israel in burning of both sons and daughters. The prophets campaigned against abortion and mourned this evil practice. In 2 Kings 8, Elisha weeps when he foresees the king of Syria ripping open pregnant women in Israel. These are the words in the Bible. Amos speaks judgment against the Ammonites who did the same in Gilead. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel condemned the slaughter and call for repentance. Extra-biblical history reveals that abortion has also been a problem for millennia in many cultures with plenty of warnings against it. The first recorded abortion was in Egypt about 1550 years BC. The Greek physician Hippocrates, one of the fathers of modern medicine, is famously known for his oath, which was written about 400 years BC, which remains the standard of ethics for all physicians and includes a resolution against both euthanasia and abortion. He says, I will not give a lethal drug to anyone if I am asked, nor will I advise such a plan. And similarly, I will not give a woman a pessary to cause an abortion. A pessary was a device known to have been used to induce abortion. Then came the Romans who took violence to another level. Cicero, about 100 years BC, noted that according to the 12 tables of Roman law, 
deformed infants shall be killed. Plutarch, about 100 years AD, recorded what appeared to be the brutal killing of babies as a sport and contrast this with early Christian practice and history which records teachings against abortion and infanticide countercultural to the predominant Roman stream. The practice of inducing miscarriages unfortunately continued throughout the Middle Ages, often tied to choosing an heir after adultery or to prevent sex workers from losing their so-called livelihood. It was also understood that to save the life of a mother during a complicated breach presentation, a termination was inevitable. Thankfully, C-sections became safer through the years and succeeded in saving the lives of many a mother and a child. In reality, infanticide was a much more predominant practice than abortion, which was dangerous to the mother until the middle of the 19th century. But then came the modern age with the spread of eugenics inspired by Darwinism, promoted by Margaret Sanger, the mother of Planned Parenthood, practiced by Nazi Germany under the guise of life, unworthy of life, known as Liebens Anwurtes Lieben, and continuing today with sex-selective abortion of children with defects or chromosomal anomalies or undesirable traits or merely an undesirable child. Many Scandinavian countries today are celebrating the eradication of Down syndrome through the practice of abortion. In this country, while statistics vary because of different reporting patterns, the reality is that more than 63 million lives have been snuffed by abortion since the Supreme Court's miserable decision of Roe v. Wade on January 22, 1973. Today marks 50 years since abortion was legalized, a dark year of jubilee, of death. This unjust statute was not insulated from the other signs of erosion of morality like hedonism, sexual promiscuity, other loosening of mores including easy divorce, alcoholism, and drugs, all of which contributed, contributed to warping the culture. And if we are true and honest with ourselves, some of us, and some of the believers who preceded us have contributed to this as well. But for a nation that prides itself in its Judeo-Christian heritage, killing more than 60 million people in 50 years with a disproportionately higher percentage of African-American, 30%, and Hispanic, 19%, women, victimized by abortion is appalling. Hear this, in the year 2000 alone, more children died from abortion in America than Americans died in the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, and the First Gulf War combined. The most dangerous place for a person in the United States of America is a woman's womb which should be the safest place. This is where returning to the word of God and to the eternal truth delivered to us is of extreme importance for Christians. You see, the Lord delights in giving life and he ordains from eternity past the beginning of our days and their numbers. 
he hates abuse. He abhors wrong sacrifices. He detests those who offer their children to idols or make them pass through fire for Molech. What do you think he senses when the kingdom of this world sacrifices its unborn upon the altars and thrones of autonomy, money, equality, career, sexual pleasure, and convenience? In light of this, we come to Psalm 139, which renews our awe at God's work of creation through conception. The word no could summarize this entire psalm. We see it in verses 1, 2, 4, 6, and 23, referring to God, and in verse 14, referring to our soul. In a world of confusion, without certainty of being known or loved, the first six verses remind us that by faith, we worship a God who knows us intimately, who has made all things, whose eyes are ever watching, so that nothing and no one is hidden from his sight. This thought should be scary to unbelievers and might be scary to you, but David reminds us that the believer finds delight in being known and as such loved by God. His searching of our soul is a cornerstone of our sanctification. His knowledge of our times and our actions should be a source of comfort. It should also be a reason for a healthy fear of the Holy One who knows every inclination of our heart and every thought of our mind. Nothing takes him by surprise. But this should take us in awe of the one before whom nothing is hidden, even as he gently lays his hand upon us and protects us from what may, what may come. The next six verses, verses 7 through 12, we see that God's knowledge of people is intimate and all-encompassing in both vertical and horizontal directions. The believer finds delight in being led by our shepherd, taught by our shepherd, known by our shepherd, and protected by him, even in the darkest and scariest parts of the world. God's omniscience and omnipresence enlighten every inch of this universe, because he is sovereign over it all. The Lord reigns supreme and shines the light of his knowledge as far as no one can see and none can go. The darkest place and the farthest area are not hidden from his sight. And so we come to verses 13 through 16. In the depth and darkness of the womb and away from prying eyes, the exquisite artistry of the creator God in creating life is done silently and intimately. When he said, or what he said was very good, when he made Adam, he continues to call very good in the creation of every new human life, regardless of how it is conceived. Within or without a marriage, incest or rape, in vitro or in utero, the fertilized egg, the conceived child, is the image of God. Precious, worthy, innocent and has an absolute right to life, whether desired or undesired. A baby is never guilty of the sin of those who made it. From before the foundation of the world, God had written the names of all peoples 
in the heavenly royal register and numbered all their days. In your book, verse 16 says, were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Think of it. God has a register where he keeps all these things written in it from before the foundation of the world. And he relates to human beings and to the unborn in a personal way, even before they are formed. He tells Jeremiah the inception of his ministry, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I made you a prophet to the nations. Isaiah proclaims, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. And Paul reminds the Galatians that he was set apart before he was born. We have the prophecy also that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, signaling the beginning of life at conception, including the earthly life of the incarnate Son of God. The Son that preexisted all things was now conceived as a child in the womb of a woman, soon to be given to the world at his birth as the child. He was an unborn baby, yet he was from everlasting truly God and now truly man, with his own unique genetic code, capable of feeling, of pain, and of emotion. Hear this. At six months of pregnancy, while in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist leaped for joy at the news of the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, who was visiting her aunt. Babies, too, can rejoice in the Spirit. These verses should renew our wonder at God's work of creation, through conception and should lead us to praise and worship. Could you imagine that at one point there exist in the womb of a mother three different DNA strands, each encoding a unique individual made in the image of God? The DNA of the mother, that of the father, and at one instance, the weaving of strands from each of these DNAs, making a complete new DNA that will code every single cellular nucleus of a new human being, then, at birth, after birth, and until death. The code is the same in every cell. Think of these strands coming apart from the mother and father and now being knitted together, intricately woven in the mother's womb into a new person. Oh, so fearfully and wonderfully made. And God does it all in the secret place where nothing is hidden from his sight. So truly, all his works are wonderful and sing his praise. And the crown of his works is every human being made in the image of God who can truly sing praise from hearts full of wonder. He makes their bony frame and weaves them together. At four weeks... He gives them a heartbeat. At five, he gives them faces and budding arms and legs. At six, brain activity. At eight weeks, fingers, toes, and a working digestive system. At 10 weeks, fingerprints, nails, and functionality in most organs. At 11 weeks, complex facial expressions and behavior, including thumb sucking. At 16, the ability to respond to stress and to feel pain. At 18, soccer skills and leg kicks. At 23, a sense of motion and hearing. 
at 24 taste buds and responses to the mother's diet and also to light and sound. At 27, lung maturity. After 28 weeks and for the rest of their lives, dreams. Did you know your babies can dream in the womb? At 34, more brain learning and he softens their skin in preparation for birth. And at birth, breath in their lungs and volume to their vocal cords while the image of God is revealed through the pains of childbirth as they proclaim with their first cry the greatness of our God and that what was formed in secret is now being made manifest to all and it is very good. So this is reason for the psalmist in verses 17 and 18 and for us to marvel at the mind of God and his thoughts that are vast beyond any of our comprehension. Oh, how precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. Have you ever pondered the thoughts of God, that, the thoughts that he thinks until you were utterly exhausted or fell asleep? I dare say none of us has done so to our own detriment because his thoughts are holy and good and are worthy to be meditated on. His word is full of his revelation, which if we immerse ourselves in, reveals that God makes no accidents, that all that he does is good and it's intentional and for the good of his glorious will. Every life he creates has a purpose. Every life is worthy. So no wonder then that verses 19 to 22 speak of hatred toward the wicked who shed innocent blood. To deliberately take the life of a human is to incur the wrath of God and to forsake one's life. Psalm 94 verses 20 and 21 say, Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Friends, a culture is judged by how it treats its weakest and neediest and the innocent. And a baby in the womb is one. Job says God fashions people in the womb and he holds in his hand the life and breath of all beings. And Paul repeats this in Acts 17 saying that he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And in him we live and move and have our being. In the law, in Exodus 21, there's a provision given that if one hits a pregnant woman and the child comes out and there is harm, life is to be paid for life, regardless of the week of gestation. Did you know that that is the passage where it says tooth for tooth, eye for eye? So when someone mentions that, you take them to this passage and tells them, this is what it says. If there's harm to a pregnant woman, life is to be taken for life as to the child. Every human life, regardless of its age, health, ability, productivity, ethnicity, or geography, is endowed with honor, glory, and dignity by the one who has made it fearfully and wonderfully in his image and is worthy of such respect by all other image bearers. What is then our responsibility in action? The issue of 
worth and sanctity of human life might cause controversy like the issue of racial justice. But our moral stance must be clear. Because this issue is at the core of the word of God and the kingdom of Christ, which includes justice, morality, ethics, and medicine, theology, anthropology, and biology. Abortion is a direct insult to any physician-patient relationship. It's a direct attack on religious and scientific principles that have stood for millennia and have been defended for thousands of years, reasons why I and many others have decided to pursue a lifetime career in medicine. It undermines trust when the person who holds the power to treat would also hold the power to kill. Abortion is a failure of proper care for all people, in particular women who suffer from duress, distress, abuse, neglect, and dire need. The urge should be to comfort, to care, to preserve life, to promote health, to help those in need, to protect the weak, the widow, and the fatherless. Abortion replaces all these measures with murder. Many abortion victims have asked for this option because of the fear of suffering, of not being cared for or being able to care, of not having enough to survive, and of being stigmatized. Many have done so even at the request or push of those who otherwise would publicly claim they want to uphold life. There are plenty of examples of politicians and religious leaders who in the public eye were and are still stalwart defenders of all things conservative, yet in truth were wicked rulers who led promiscuous lives and pushed women toward abortion. Murderous, ravenous wolves who don't care about life one iota. And some of those you have elected. Every decision you make has consequences. Let us not accept their miserable failures, nor the failure of those who turn a blind eye, including ourselves, and rather transform our practice and our disposition by killing sin and refusing hypocrisy rather than killing a fetus or refusing a struggling mother. I can only start to imagine the grounds for abuse this has made room for. Even relatives might push toward this end if they harbor ulterior motives or financial incentives, or they are in duress. This is all the truer if the mother is dependent on others. And even if that's not the case, a mother might feel so overwhelmed by emotional or financial burdens imposed on herself or by loved ones, or on her loved ones, that she feels it's her duty to abort to abridge those burdens. May it never be found in our midst that someone feels, a woman feels it's her duty to put an end to a life. No one in reality cares for such women. If they did, they'd believe the evidence that abortion increases the risk of future miscarriage, of breast cancer, psychiatric illness, and even early mortality. And the risk increases with more abortions. In places like Sub-Saharan Africa, organizations I once highly respected 
like Physicians Without Borders, are known to practice population control in many villages by placing IUDs and offering to perform first trimester abortions to all women who had more than two children. I firsthand discovered this when I was counseling a nurse a couple years ago who was struggling with this organization, teaching her to do these atrocities. This might be a small example of what many organizations are doing around the world in the name of healthcare and the name of affordable options where they present abortion as a duty toward one's tribe, village, family, nation, and economy. What about stem cell research? There are plenty of ways stem cells can be taken from adults without having to create an embryo solely for the sake of then putting them to death to use their cells for research. What about IVF? Every fertilized egg is a human being made in the image of God with its own genetic code and its own imago dei that cannot be discarded or left frozen somewhere in a lab. I know some friends who have adopted embryos because there are many, many labs that take these frozen embryos and try to ad have people adopt them so that they are not discarded, they are not killed. So please seek wise counsels in these decisions. What about contraception? Brothers and sisters, please seek enlightenment regarding what can prevent ovulation or fertilization and, this, and thus does not lead to abortion compared to what prevents implantation, which is abortifacient. Friends, also, I believe every woman has a moral and ethical right to be protected from abuse from bullying, from rape, from any violence done to her, be it physically or emotionally. And I believe we all have rights to our own bodies, but I don't hold those rights absolute or unlimited. There's a very important ethical principle called graded absolutism, which we all practice in day-to-day -day life, but we don't call it that, which means that some things are to be held more absolute than others. For example, it's wrong to lie, but we all agree that it's permissible to lie to save a life as some did in the Holocaust. Time limits me from explaining this further. Feel free to talk to us afterwards. But in a similar way, our rights must be weighed against the rights of others, and that's why we have restraints in place. Because if all of our rights are absolute, we will be living in anarchy. That's why we have no right of killing another human or of mutilating ourselves or others. Because it is categorically wrong to kill innocent human lives. Because our bodies are not our own, but the Lord's and the temple of the Holy Spirit. In light of this, is the unborn child a part of the mother's body or a separate entity? It is true the child inhabits the womb within the mother, but we have established that this child is its own body, mind, person, genetic code, and image of God. Its right to life is absolute. The child is a separate human being that deserves protection, and the imposition of restraints on people who interact with this child so as not to be the recipient of mutilation, abuse, or murder. There's no difference in worth of living 
between a baby above the six-inch long birth canal or a baby below it. And also, dependency is not a basis for killing. An embryo is no more dependent on its mother for sustenance than a newborn or a sick child or an ill adult who depends on a ventilator or a dialysis machine. We don't kill people because they depend on others. Because they all have the same dignity from the Creator. So stop believing in the quality of life story that goes around in our culture. That you have to protect your quality of life and the way of American life. That way leads to death. The only way that leads to life is the way of Christ. And it's narrow. You better walk in it. Brothers and sisters, my desire for us is that we are not known merely by what we oppose, but by what we uphold. I don't want us to be only known as anti-gay marriage or anti-LGBTQ legislation, but as people who uphold biblical truth, like the union of one man and one woman, and a lifelong holy matrimony that perseveres through suffering and difficulties to seek uniting those two wills in one under Christ and forsake all other fleeting pleasures. And we better do it in our lives first, walk in them, and tell them to others. In a similar way, I don't want us to be known merely as anti-abortion, but as people who delight in the life that God gives, who worship the God who makes things for his glory, who creates people intricately and fearfully. I want us to be people who seek to uphold struggling mothers, who are willing to adopt children, who spend time, money, effort, and gifts to counsel, care, support, and be inconvenienced from our American individualism to see other people having life and having it abundantly. And we better be ready to accept the consequences of the stances that we do and we take knowing that our allegiance is to the kingdom of God, not to the kingdom of this world. Now, brothers and sisters, I am acutely aware that it is very likely that in a group this size today, someone had considered or even had an abortion. Or someone might have suggested or pushed this lethal option on another. Along the final two lines of this, ser- of this psalm, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I am calling on us to be searched by God, our hearts to be known by him, our thoughts to be tried by him so that he may lead us away from such grievous ways. And repentance and humility by his mercy toward forgiveness and hope and the grace of eternal life. There is more mercy in God than there is sin in us. And he has died to take our guilt and our shame away. This is not the unforgivable sin. And Jesus stands ready to receive all those who call in his name. You might carry a heavy scar in your life, but I pray you find us ready to weep with you and hold you as you weep.
Even when we doctors have to make the hard decision to induce labor in order to save the life of an ill mother, the burden is heavy in knowing that a human being is dying at 13 or 18 or 22 weeks so that we can save the life of another. While good doctors do the right thing, we have to live with such consequences and heavy burdens. I had shared this with um, some of us before and I was encouraged to share it with you today. Um, time limits me to go into much detail, but I will tell you. In 2015, I was still in my fellowship and I still remember the first time we had to get to this point. The young woman who was, who was in septic shock, who had come to us in the intensive care unit, was 18 weeks pregnant. And she was an IV drug user. And she had bacteria in her blood and an infection on her heart. The knee-jerk reflex for everyone when I was up in New York was to immediately terminate the pregnancy. And I tried to see if we can save both mother and child. Even the, the mother herself was all for abortion until we put that monitor and she heard a heartbeat that was about 170 times a minute. And she said, is this my baby? And her disposition changed. And of all people who were trying to care for that woman, I was the only one that was not treating her in a judgmental way because outside her room, people were saying, well, she brought this on herself because she's an IV drug user, as if no one is without sin. And I was the only one who was spending time with her, praying with her, counseling her, sharing the gospel with her, and telling her about options that we have if she cannot take care of her child. And for the next five days, those were the most, the days that had the most dilemma and struggle as I was having these conversations with, with the rest of the team and I was still in training, trying to save both, and then her condition got worse. And we eventually had to induce labor to save her life. And my boss chose a pro-choice nurse to do this because the nurse said, oh, I don't care about this. But when the baby was born, 18 weeks, the size of a pear, that looks like an, any other baby, just smaller in size, even trying to breathe, there was no dry eye in that room. Even the pro-choice nurse was bawling. Add to this that New York State mandates that a child that was born at that age has to be named and has to be issued a birth certificate and a death certificate. One of the most pro-abortion states in the nation still has a statue that that child is worthy and has to be named and given a birth and a death certificate, even if the day of birth was also the day of death. And I became the chief consoler and counselor for all people who were involved. 
even as I tried to present, I had tried to present the Christian worldview to, for the previous five days and some of what I shared with you today. And I had been offered before this a job to stay on staff as faculty. And after this, I had many meetings and counsel that if I were to continue in my view on the sanctity of life, that I would not have that job that was near my family. What we do has consequences. And what I told them is that this does not change because the word of God is true and it is worth that we do all things in line with the word of God. Even that if that means we change where we live or what we do and we take those consequences. And this is one of the main reasons why I'm here today because what God, what people mean for evil, God can turn for good. And even if we live with consequences that inducing labor to save the life of a mother who was critically ill, and we were able to save her life, and since then, many times, it is still hard to stand there and see a child dying so that we can save the life of a mother. Christian living, friends, comes with consequences. But God has guaranteed that he does all things for the good and glorious purpose of his will. And he's also standing ready to receive all those who come to him and confess. And he's ready to take away the guilt and the shame. We have all done shameful things. None of us is without sin. I am speaking these words to my heart and to yours. None of us, when we preach on Sunday, we are lording this over you. We are doing this for the mutual edification of the body so, so that we together can come before God and be transformed anew. It's been 50 years since that hideous day. More than 63 million abortions in America. An estimated 1.5 billion abortions in the world. And more throughout past history. In addition, brothers and sisters, we are acutely aware that women have suffered miscarriages, ectopic pregnancies, and stillbirth, including some of our sisters here in this very congregation. And even as we weep for these lives, we pray, come Lord Jesus, and put an end to this. I pray that each one of us every day would say, come Lord Jesus, how long, O oh Lord, put an end to this. But until then, let us cling to the promise that one day we will stand before the throne and we will see the faces of all those children who were fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, innocent, recipients of God's grace, now a nation made up of thousands upon thousands from every tribe, people, 
and language, whose voices were silenced before they were able to speak. But that day and forever will have no less days to sing God's praise than when they first begun. And that day we will say to the Lord, thank you. We will say, glory be to your name. Your purposes are good. And you are worthy to be praised and worshipped and receive all glory and honor. In Christ, the Lamb, in the believers, and in all these children, that none was lost from his hand. And we will worship him forevermore. God, we praise you, we worship you, we glorify your name because you are good. Sometimes it is hard to see this goodness when the world around us has been so enmeshed in this culture of death. But God, we come to you, the Lord of life, who delights in giving life and breath and everything to all peoples. And even as we cry, how long, O oh Lord? We say, but we have trusted in your steadfast love. We will indeed sing and make melody to the Lord our God because you have been good to us. God, forgive us our trespasses. Take away any guilt or shame that is left in our hearts or in our minds for what we have done. Indeed, we have come today to be assured again that you are a good father and a good shepherd and that we, your children, can gather to worship you knowing that you have removed our shame from us and you have clothed us with the righteousness of Christ until the day where we stand before you. And until then, O oh God, guide us for more obedience to your word. Guide us to proclaim the light and glory and excellencies of you who have made us your children and who have redeemed us and who have called us a nation of priests and kings to you. We thank you for the assurance and the promise we have that we belong to Christ and because we do, nothing and no one can separate us from your love. And that one day you will come and make all things new. And we will worship you with tribes and nations and thousands upon thousands upon thousands that we stand before you. And we can proclaim that the Lord is truly good. And that there is a hope, a mighty hope, a great hope, a true hope in Christ who has called us for himself, who has made us for himself, in whose hand we are secure, where no one can ever snatch us out. So God, be glorified in our lives, even as you search us and teach us and renew in our minds the worship of your glorious name. Blessed be your name in our lives, in Christ Jesus, in this church, now and forever. Amen.